Hey, so um, the preaching schedule that I had laid out uh, for this month has us returning to our verse-by-verse study through Corinthians. You can turn there if you want to, but we won't read anything from it. Um, We finished off our series on communion. Now we're back to where we left off last August of last year. But there is this passage in the book of Acts, chapter 8, where an evangelist named Philip had to rearrange his schedule for a baptism. Uh, He had been doing fine, having a good time in a successful ministry in Samaria. I'm sure he was going to, he knew what he was going to teach on the week after as well. And then the Holy Spirit tells him, leave, go out into the desert by yourself. And is where he encounters an Ethiopian man who is reading the book of Isaiah and not understanding a word of it. And Philip shows him how the passage that he's reading is talking about a suffering Messiah who would die for the sins of his people. And after this gospel presentation, they come to some water, and the Ethiopian man says, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And that's when Philip said, Are you crazy? It's the beginning of February. Bass Lake is freezing cold. There's snow in the shady spots right now. Can't you just wait till August like normal people? Um, I know a guy with a hot tub. We can No, that wasn't Philip, actually. All of that was me, and I am publicly repenting of that now in, in your presence. Um, when the question is asked, what, hit, what prevents me from being baptized, the answer is absolutely nothing, which is why I'm rearranging the preaching schedule for baptism today at 2 o'clock at Miller's Landing at Bass Lake. Felix is going to be baptized, and anyone else that wants to jump in with him, Okay. Uh, maybe maybe another, yeah, we can clap about that one, actually. That's fine. Um, uh, Felix is going to be baptized. Who knows? Maybe another brave soul or two. This is open uh, to anyone qualified, and nothing prevents you from being baptized but water, and we know where some is. Um, we always hope for last-minute baptisms, like we read in, in uh, Acts chapter 8. If you have not been baptized, there's water. Today's your day. Uh, The Holy Spirit, of course, is always wise, always knows what is best. And he knew that it would be fitting for our church. After a long discussion on one of the sacraments, he would have us pause now and consider the other one. Communion and baptism really go hand in hand. One is a picture of your new birth. The other is a picture of staying alive, having been born. You're born once, you eat every day. Okay, and those are our, our two Christian sacraments. These are two physical things that we do that are unique because of the spiritual weight that they carry. They're unique among the things that we Christians are all about because they require stuff. Uh, You can pray without stuff. You can listen to the gospel without material things getting in the way necessarily. But baptism needs water. And communion, you need bread and wine. Um, These are also things that you do. It's not just things that you talk about or think about. Uh, You can't have communion by imagining bread and wine. You can't just feel baptized and say that it counts. These are things that you do. Sacraments are physical things through which spiritual realities come. There's no baptism without water, no Lord's Supper without bread and wine. There's a lot of stuff, actually, that we've discovered about communion that could easily be applied to baptism. And the first and simplest thing I already mentioned, it's that we do it. Now, I'm talking about baptism today. That's what we're talking about. But talking about it isn't really what it's for, is it? Baptism, like communion, is a way of doing something real. It is a real commitment. Uh, The commitment is through faith, just like our meeting with Christ and communion is through faith. That doesn't mean that you can get to the same place by closing your eyes and clicking your heels three times. Uh, 
it's not accomplished by wishful thinking and good intentions. Good intentions. When we were talking about communion the very first week, I said you will not meet Jesus in this way if you do not meet him in this way. And by the way, if you missed any part of that series, please go back and listen to each one. Um, it's important for our church to understand why we have communion and why we do it every week. It's on YouTube. It's on the website. We have a podcast. You can go and listen to those messages again. I suggest that you do. A lot of the things about communion, like I said, can easily cross over to baptism. Of course, each one is unique. Baptism is a picture of being born again. And communion, communion is us being spiritually fed. As such, baptism is a one-time thing, like being born. Communion is a frequent thing, like breakfast. <laughs> Baptism is a commitment that a Christian makes, and while there are other ways to make your commitment to Christ, of course, there is only one baptism. And baptism, like communion, is a sermon in itself. In communion, we say every week, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Baptism is a proclamation of our death with him. We declare the sufficiency of Christ's death in this way, in baptism. Baptism, like communion, is something that we ought to take seriously. And I think there's one main way in which Christians might take it less seriously than they ought. Um, and that would be seeing baptism as a completely optional, unnecessary thing and counting its value is basically on par with a flannel graph for grown-ups, right? It's like, it kind of looks like resurrection, get it? They're underground and now they're up, neat, huh? Like, if you see it just as like this visual aid, that, that's a very shallow view. The result of this kind of thinking leads Christians to often put off being baptized and then putting it off some more and then putting it off some more, maybe never getting around to it. And that is in direct opposition to what we see practiced in scripture and in direct opposition to the teachings of scripture. What we see in Scripture is baptism presented not as something optional, um, but as a matter of obedience. And obedience is never optional. Jesus tells his disciples to baptize people. When the apostles proclaim the gospel, they tell people, repent and be baptized. And what we see with the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, and with all the new converts in Acts chapter 2 on the church's first birthday, and elsewhere in Acts, it seems like baptism is their equivalent of saying amen after the sinner's prayer. Uh, you know the sinner's prayer, the prayer someone may have led you in to become a Christian. You, your confession, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That The prayer you pray to become a Christian is part of a verbal confession, which is necessary for your salvation. And of course, the belief in your heart is necessary. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. We want people to believe. We want them to say what they believe. But in Acts, when someone does these things that are required for salvation, and then they ask, what must, when they ask, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe, confess. And then the first thing they do with that saving faith is they get baptized. Acts 16 being a perfect example. It's immediate following their conversion. The act of baptism was so closely connected to the act of faith where one happened and then the other followed at its heels so closely, so immediately, that Peter feels completely comfortable saying, baptism saves us. That's what he writes in First Peter, which raises all sorts of questions that people get tied into knots over, right? The long and the short of it, though, is this. When you get saved by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and by accepting him as your Lord, you need to get baptized 
immediately. If you believe, this is the act that follows that saving faith. Baptism is the amen of your sinner's prayer. It is an act of obedience, and it is required of you. Now, the best kind of obedience, any parent of any child will tell you this, the best kind of obedience is quick obedience. That's what we see with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts. That's what we want to encourage, even if it means a February baptism. What we want to do also, while recognizing that baptism is first and foremost something that we do, we want to understand what we're doing as much as possible. And because we want to know uh, the riches of the blessings that are for us in Christ, we want to know what we get out of it. And that may sound a bit selfish and shallow, but guess what? You are. So let's be honest. We're the kids that want to know what our, what our Father's giving us, right? So we get a look at that today. We get to find out what baptism is. I'm going to walk you through some verses in Romans chapter 6. And then we'll look at Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism and see the kind of blessings that we get in baptism. So first Romans 6, turn there please. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about how grace works. And he's saying it doesn't mean you just go on sinning and then asking for forgiveness. That's not how grace works. God doesn't just excuse our sins. He kills them. He kills our sin and then actually makes us holy. He doesn't pretend that we're holy. He transforms us with resurrection power into holy people. And one of the ways he does this, according to Paul, is through baptism. One of the ways you are reminded of this is through baptism. Verse 1, Romans chapter 6, says, What shall we say then? Shall we not continue in sin that grace may abound? Or sorry, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I'm going to read through verse 11. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a lot of words, and they're good ones, uh, but it might be helpful to hear Paul make a similar point more concisely. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what you have to know about baptism, and you can't miss it if you read these passages. Baptism is an execution. I have been crucified. The person submitting themselves to baptism is, is reckoning themselves, counting themselves to be dead indeed to sin. Now, the, the, with communion, you know, we recognize the trouble of uh, symbolic language, Right? And not just the trouble of taking it too literally, but also the trouble of excusing it because us modern materialists would have to be reminded that spiritual things are real things. 
and that material things have spiritual value. But Paul says he was crucified with Christ. And we say, really though? Like, really? And we say, yes, really. More real than the merely physical or temporal can grasp. Paul tells baptized people to think this way, live this way, believe this way, and he is not asking them to pretend, to play, to live a lie. When he says, reckon yourselves to be dead, he's asking them to believe a fact that is actually true, not just do some manipulative mind trick on yourself so you can feel a certain way. Paul certainly followed his own advice. He calls himself a dead man. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. He does not say, sometimes I pretend like I'm crucified and it, it helps with my bad habits. Like that is nothing at all what he's saying. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, he includes the other Christians with him into this death. He says, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That actually happened. And that verse shows us the next thing baptism is. It's not just an execution, it is also a burial. The burial of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is an integral part of the gospel itself. Paul defines the gospel in terms of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Why would a burial be important? One, to confirm the death. You, you may know people who have been, uh, you know, through whatever tragic emergency, maybe they nearly died, maybe they even stopped breathing, maybe the heart stopped beating, and then praise the Lord for defibrillators, an EMT in the ambulance brings them back, and we say they were technically dead, and they were brought back to life. But we generally do not refer to this as resurrection. Resuscitation is not resurrection. And burial really marks the two as different things. Uh, many times throughout history, it became sort of in vogue to leave the body of the deceased in their house for a few days, at least three, after death, just to make sure they're really dead. You bury them with little strings going up to bells in the graveyard, because if you hear a bell, you know that they weren't quite dead. Burying someone during their nap is the height of rudeness. And uh, burial confirms death. It means you're really, really dead. It is in the grave where Christ cast off your sins as far as the east is from the west. Baptism is your burial. It means you're really dead. Really, really dead. If you have been baptized with Christ, then you can reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin. Now, we know this isn't saying, and it would be wrong to say, baptism makes you stop sinning. It's great. You should try it. Okay? We, are, we recognize that the old you that finds sinning not to be second nature, but first nature, only nature, that nature is put to death. In other words, until you get a new nature, until you are a new creation, don't be surprised when you keep acting like the old you, the old nature. Baptism does put that old nature to death. And there's an element of that struggle that continues. Paul had to confess, I die daily. But he didn't get baptized daily. He could die daily because he could refer back to the actual moment in history where he was baptized. And before that, the actual moment in history where Christ was buried, taking your sins away and leaving them there. Now our struggle against sin, our daily death, is defined in terms of a foregone conclusion. Sin has died. Christ crucified it. Your old life is dead. It has been buried. The old you, the version of you that is an enemy of God, the person you were, the person that uh, is, an, is fighting against the lordship of Christ and only wanting to be in charge, that person dies in Christ. 
Your struggle with sin now is a struggle to live as a baptized person. It's a struggle to live as a resurrected person. But you are a resurrected person. The version of yourself that sins because it's its nature must be put to death. It must be buried. And baptism shows us that death. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says that Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And there's a life that's all about you, right? There is, there is a life that you live in your daydreams that is entirely ego, entirely me-centered. Jesus died so that life would stop, that it would stop breathing. The heartbeat stops. He died so that those who live for themselves would live no longer for themselves. Literally, that they would be able to die to themselves. That's what happens in baptism. The baptized person has died to themselves, and they've been buried with Christ. And you say, have I really been buried with Christ? The answer is yes, really, in baptism. He gave you that. When we talk about communion, every week I point out the mystery that's nearly impossible to understand, that Christ is both seated in heaven and with us always. And how the scripture says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And I don't remember sitting down there. We read, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And I think, I think I found a way to get out. Like, can you put me back in? But we, we believe these things. And we don't believe that these things are imaginary. But we believe that these are truths that are beyond our imagination, beyond what we can ask, think, or imagine. We don't believe that that's just Paul hallucinating, talking about this stuff. We believe it is real in ways that show our own perception of reality to be weak and shaky. God is really here. Communion is a mysterious bridge between these mysterious truths, and baptism is too. And when we say with Paul that we have been crucified with Christ, that we died with him, that we were buried with him, and we ask again, how, how though? And Paul says, through baptism. He says you were buried with him through baptism, into death. Baptism is your death. It is your burial, and praise the Lord. Baptism is a resurrection. Baptism isn't just going under the water. It's coming up again. As a participant in the gospel, in the life of Christ, the one who is baptized is united with Christ in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. He died for your sins, but he was raised for your justification. Romans 4.25 Your baptism united you really, truly, and permanently to Jesus himself. And Jesus is not dead. Without the resurrection, we would still be in our sins. We confess that, right? We would have no confidence of forgiveness, and the rite of baptism would be lethal in a very different way. We wouldn't call it baptism, we would just call it drowning, uh, and it would be a lot less fun. Uh, but that's not how it goes. Christ has been raised from the dead, and just as we are united with him in his death, through baptism, we are united with him in resurrection as well. We are walking now in newness of life. The one who has been baptized is a new creation. They've not been resuscitated, given a second chance. They have been resurrected and made new. Death, burial, resurrection, that's the gospel. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is his death that forgives sins, his burial that buries those sins and casts them as far as the east is from the west. It is his resurrection that defeats death itself and opens heaven for us, giving us access to God himself. When we preach the gospel, we proclaim the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And when we talk about baptism, we say, you can make all of this personal. Jesus' death becomes your death. His burial becomes your burial. His resurrection is a gift to you. It becomes yours. And this is kind of the nature of the sacraments, right? In communion, we don't talk about the broken body of Jesus. We actually receive it. It becomes personal. We don't form theories about what the body of Christ is, only we become the body of Christ, scratching our heads the whole time, wondering, how is this? But, but it is. That's what we become the body of Christ. We become what we receive. In baptism, too, we don't just remember a story about Jesus' death. We become united with him in his death. We don't just imagine an empty tomb. We go underwater and stop breathing for half a second. The sacraments make real to us these spiritual realities of our salvation. In baptism, his death becomes our death. His burial becomes our burial. And his resurrection becomes our resurrection. As such, we can look at Christ's baptism and see glimpses of what God offers us in our baptism. Turn to Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized. Now, his is going to be different than yours, okay? Because um, he's kind of different than you. <laughs> in Matthew 3, we read about Jesus' baptism. In verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Verse 14, and John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This was certainly a special occasion. Uh, Christ's baptism was not normal. It is not normal. John knew it. He'd been baptizing people all day, and he's like, nope, this is where I draw the line. This does not make sense. Uh, we, John's baptism, we, we call it a baptism of repentance. That's what it's called in Scripture. Jesus didn't have anything to repent of. It doesn't make sense. And John says, this isn't right. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Christ's righteousness the fulfillment of all righteousness is the atonement of man with God. It is the all righteousness is God and man becoming friends again. And in part, part of that is Christ's association, even identification with us sinners. Now, Luke, when he tells the story of, of uh, Christ's baptism in Luke 3, he says that Jesus was baptized when all the people were baptized. He didn't have like a special little place over there where the water was cleaner, you know? Uh, he's associating with repenting sinners, saying, these are my people. He's associating with us. And this is how a lot of the early church fathers saw this. They saw Christ's baptism as him getting into the water with us, saying, it's fine, come on in. <laughs> By being baptized when he did not need to, he made all of our baptisms a connection to his. Now, Hebrews says that he became like us in all ways, yet without sin. And we have to recognize that when we go to be identified with him in baptism, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 6, right? It says, you're looking a little bit like Jesus when you do this. You're going and being baptized, and you're, you're being uh, united with him in the likeness of his death. See, it kind of looks like death. When we go to associate with him, we're not making the first move. We never make the first move. <laughs> he came to us and associated with us in his baptism. And because this is so, again, we get to see glimpses of what we receive when we get in the water with him. 
the heavens are opened. Literally, the word means heaven was ripped open. This is what we see in Jesus. Jesus Christ opened heaven for us. Beginning at his baptism, Jesus of Nazareth brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. He opens heaven. In Isaiah 61, the prophet prays, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Guess what? He did. This is what Christ has done. Heaven is closed without Jesus. But in the incarnation, God has made a way for God and man to dwell together. The veil is torn. This is all accomplished for us in Christ. But in baptism and in that putting to death of the old man, you are also gaining access to a wide open heaven. Before you're born again, you are an enemy of God, far from him, without hope in the world. There's heaven over there. There's the kingdom of God over there. And there's a wall and you're over there and you can't cross it. Baptism changes your citizenship. You go through passport control now with no problems. Okay, Heaven is opened to you in baptism. Now, once again, I ought to say that the New Testament equivalent of the sinner's prayer seems to be baptism. They're, they're, they're kind of connected. They're, they're inseparable. Our access to heaven is through faith. It is believing in Jesus. Um, and baptism is the act of faith that Scripture shows us. Rather than something following the act of faith by years and years and years, it ought to be so close you almost don't know which is which. And now when we see the baptism of Jesus, we see that heaven opens and the Spirit descends. In every account of the baptism of Jesus, we read that the Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. The word Christ, it means anointed one. And Isaiah again, Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he has sent me to preach good news. Jesus applied this, this passage to himself. And we see the fulfillment right there in front of us. The Spirit of God is on Jesus of Nazareth. We're told here, that the, uh, we're told that he had the Spirit without measure in John 3.34. And here's the amazing truth that seems really almost too good to be true. He has given us the same Spirit. The same Spirit that came on Christ in baptism, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, lives in you. In fact, what John says about Jesus before his baptism is that he will come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Christ means anointed, which, you know, anointed Christ. Okay, you're Christians, right? You've been anointed with the same spirit, which means you are anointed also to bring good news. Being anointed with the spirit of God makes evangelists out of us. We're told that uh, in uh, Romans 8, verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead, Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God has given us his spirit. The next thing that happens at Christ's baptism, the father speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are my son. This is the announcement of Christ as Messiah. God the Father announces Jesus as his son. A few of the New Testament authors quote Psalm 2, where God says to some future messianic figure, you are my son, and then goes on to describe how this son of God will be an anointed king who will rule the world. And guess what? That's Jesus. He is the son of God. He is the savior of the world and the Lord of the world. Revelation 11, uh, 15, we see heaven rejoice with the declaration that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Christ. That is amazing. Now, when you're baptized, you do not automatically become king of the world. But 
you do become a son or a daughter. And in that, you become royalty with God himself, the king of the universe, as your father. Baptism is a sign of you being born again. And when you are born again, you're not born into the old family that you already had. You are not born again as the same person, version 2.0. You are born into a new race, not descended from Adam, but descended from Christ. Baptism gives you a new father. It's God himself. Baptized people belong to a new family. And this, again, flows from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In his discussion on the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, Paul uh, calls the Spirit the Spirit of Adoption and says it is by the Holy Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus is the only one who can open heaven. But since he has come to be with us, dwell with us, be our God, heaven is open for us too. Now the Holy Spirit is is one with the Father and with the Son. Jesus was one substance with the Father and the Spirit. You can't really say the same thing about yourself. But Jesus received the Spirit without measure, and now because he has welcomed us into fellowship with him, he has welcomed you to share in this same anointing. And you can bear the name of Christian, anointed with the same Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. Your bodies are temples, and we as the body of Christ are a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. That position is not open for applications. You, but you are not a, you're not a son or daughter of God in the same way that Jesus was, who is eternal, omniscient, omnipotent. But through the Spirit, through the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, and through his, this baptism into a new family, we are adopted as sons and daughters and receive all the rights and privileges of sonship. What we seek in the sacraments is union with God. And in the sacraments, we see that what happens to Christ happens to us. He brings us along for the ride. This is what Paul was hinting at when he says, to live is Christ. I'm only walking in his footsteps here. And when he said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When he spoke of his wounds as the wounds of Christ, he saw his life as an extension of Jesus, or rather he saw that Jesus, in his kindness, has extended his life to us. He shares himself with us. His baptism, which is totally unique to him as sinless Lamb of God, is still a baptism that becomes ours and, and that our own baptisms echo. If you have been baptized and you've been baptized into Christ, and what is his becomes yours. He's opened heaven. He does so for us. The Spirit falls on him, and the Spirit has been given to us as well. He is God's only begotten Son, and we also become sons of God through our new birth and through adoption. Now, after all of these beautiful truths being seen and considering the good things that he's given to us, I'm sure that you're considering, you know, double dipping as a as a real possibility in your future. But baptism is is meant to be one and done. Okay? Now, if you feel like the first time you were baptized didn't stick or didn't count some somehow and now you need a 100,000 mile checkup oil change and rebaptism, you don't get it. <laughs> it's not your level of understanding that makes this more or less effective. It's Christ. He is the active agent. You don't get to do this twice. But I believe that each one of us, as baptized believers, need the reminder of what happened to us when we were baptized. 
And that reminder is given to us whenever we go to welcome in a new member of the family. Baptism is once, but Paul says, I die daily. It's an event that follows you, that shapes the way you live. It defines your walk with Christ because it's his walk that he invites you to. So today you get to be reminded of what your baptism was. And whenever you see someone get baptized, which you have the opportunity to do today, then you get to be reminded that that's that's your baptism too because there is one baptism. There was one death and it worked. There's one burial. It was effective. There's one resurrection. You get to take part in it. Today, at 2 o'clock, at Miller's Landing, come and see Felix baptized. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We delight in the good things that you give your children. We pray that we would fully uh, just be able to, to realize these good blessings that are ours, that we would be more and more united to Christ more and more united in the likeness of his death, and more grateful even, more joyful recognizing that you have made us alive in Christ. We worship you, Jesus, and thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 After we sing, uh, if anyone would like prayer for anything specific, they can come up and receive prayer. The rest of you can go uh, set up for lunch. Sound good? Go ahead and stand up. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.